This week's podcast is sponsored by Direction. Hello and welcome to another episode of Investing with IBD Podcast. It's Justin Nielsen, your host, and it is February 28th, 2024, as we are taping this. And joining me as always is Arusha Paris. He is from O'Neill Global Advisors. He's a portfolio manager and analyst over there. And uh, for those of you that are watching this the day that it drops, you might notice a little funny something on the calendar there. It's February 29th for you. It's a leap year. Uh, any any leap year plans there, Arusha? <laughs> No, I, I didn't even realize it was leap year until we, <laughs> right until I said something. Well, right, that just goes to show yeah. how much you watch your calendar. That's uh, true. So, um, well, and you know, hey, look, we've got an extended month, so if you're feeling a little bit cozy with this extra time, pull up a chair and make yourself comfortable because we've got some stories straight from the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange for you. Uh, joining us now, a first-time guest for us is Jay Woods, Chief Global Strategist at Freedom Capital, uh, and he's. Uh, also got these CMT letters behind him, char uh, Chartered Market Technician. I, I could say that for Arusha as well, but I just don't want to um, because <laughs> I don't want him to get you know his head bigger. Of course, you might recognize Jay from his appearances on CNBC, Bloomberg. Gosh, he's he's been all over the place. So, Jay, how are you doing? It's great to have you on here. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, I you know I think. You're you're so in tune with so many of the guests that we've had. Um, you, you you know all of our guests. You're friends with them. You've worked with them for a long time. Uh, but I think a lot of our listeners don't really know your story. Uh, so tell us how you got started in stocks. Uh, I I got started in stocks by uh, you know as an eight year old getting two <laughs> shares of IBM uh, from my uncle who happens to be a famous technician uh, by the name of Ralph Acampora, and he gave me these two shares of IBM and said. You just have to do one thing. You have to chart them on a weekly basis. So high, low, close, high, low, close. Did this for two months. He comes down to visit me. I grew up in Philadelphia. He was in the Bronx. And uh, I go, hey, Uncle Ralph, what am I doing here? And uh, he drew a line under it. And he said, what's it doing? I go, it's going up. And he goes, that's an uptrend, kid. And uh, that was my foray into technical analysis. It didn't really take right away. I went to Fordham University, wanted to go to law school uh, until I needed an internship. And I was blessed uh, to get an internship in the industry. And I was on a trading desk. I wasn't looking at charts. I was looking at traders and it was yelling and screaming, just like in the 1987 movie, Wall Street. Right. And that was euphoric. And I had a great team there, a firm called Sherwood Securities that doesn't exist anymore. But uh, that gave me the bug. And uh, then I went back to the charts and I parlayed that internship to a job on the floor. And I started on the floor in 1992 and I haven't left. My roles have changed. The market share has changed. But uh, to be a part of that NYSE community, as long as I have, has been the greatest blessing in my life. And the life lessons I continue to learn to this day have been invaluable. So mm -hmm. you know, talking about lessons, what were some of the, the biggest lessons you learned uh, while working on the floor? Well, the floor, I, I learned how to get lunch. I learned how to take <laughs> orders. It was a different world in 1992. Our training on the floor, you don't do this anymore with human resources, but the training was like the Karate Kid movie. Uh, the good one, the one with the, not the Will Smith version, but the, the 80s, <laughs> the Elizabeth Shue version. Well, I talk to young kids and they don't know that version. That's right? true. That's <laughs> true. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, my training of waxing the car and painting the fence was get lunch for these 10 different brokers and these 10 different stocks with these 10 different attitudes and get it right. Because if you can't get the lunch right, how on earth are you eventually going to trade in a crowd with 10 different personalities, with 10 different firms and 10, 10 different stocks? And if you can't handle lunch, you're not going to be handled a trading crowd. So that was my foray into it. You spend years in college, you come out, and you're like, whoa. But that community, the 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 way they taught you, the way they brought you up, you learned the hard way, uh, but you paid your dues and it was fantastic. And I've been there through changes. We started in eighths, then we went to 16th. Mm -hmm. And then when we went to 16th, the old school guys were out of here. Right? They're cutting half my profits. <laughs> then we went to pennies and another wave left. Technology ramped up. I was able to pivot and embrace the technology. When I got my seat in 1998, I was that young kid that knew how to deal with this stuff and it flowed. And then the technicals really incorporated into my trading skills. And I, then I finally did a deep dive studying into that because when you're trading minute by minute, second by second on the floor, I better know my levels before I get down to that trading yeah. floor. So I'm prepared mm -hmm. for the day. Now, 
technicals, if this, then that. And I was always ready to pivot. And then if I had a crowd of five hungry buyers in front of me, I knew the stock was going to go up. I could rip the chart up right now. But where do I want to sell? How do I want to handle it? That is the one thing that's remained constant. We, we've gone to decimalization. We, we trade by anchored VWAP with Brian Shannon. Uh, mm -hmm. What he does, if you're trading minute by minute, if you don't know VWAP levels, then you're, you're really behind the eight ball. Um, I was able to evolve. And then after COVID, unfortunately, things changed again. And we lost, you know, to put it in perspective, my firm, Spearleys and Kellogg, was taken over by Goldman Sachs. We had 330 employees in our height of employment in 2005. Because of enhancements to technology, we didn't need to teletype every order. We just zoomed them in. We got rid of the clerical staff. We got rid of the you know support staff. No one was getting this lunch anymore. Uh, we went from 330 people down to 15 by the time Goldman left the business in 2014. I survived. Uh, I was able to adapt and have alliances. And yes, Jeff Probst Survivor was my favorite show from 2000 <laughs> to 2008. I played a real life game of it, right. but I was able to evolve. And then after COVID, my firm left the business again. And then I had a chance to pivot. And I was doing some social media, media stuff on smaller networks like a Yahoo Finance. I had a lot of friends being at the epicenter of the financial media world, being on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. You meet everyone. All these people on CNBC were my friends. Bob Zani asked me to come on air to fill in for Art Cashin once. And I, my heart just sank. And my firm said no. So when the pivot came, I went to a firm that enabled me to talk not just to customers, not just to people that want to you know, be, become financial literate, which I do a lot of, uh, but to talk to media. And that, that's really taken off. And now I get to work with a great group here at Freedom where I get to talk to clients, customers, write weekly and you know, talk about the market and do it on TV with people I've been comfortable with my whole life. Uh, it doesn't feel like work. Don't tell them that, but uh, it, <laughs> right. it, it's, it's fantastic. And um, yeah, I've really reinvented myself again. And the technicals now are more long-term, uh, but with technicals, I can go short-term. I would keep this smock on and go into a trading crowd tomorrow. If I could, I miss it. I miss the open outcry, but now it's all algorithms and it tends to be slow and boring. So I'm not slow. I'm definitely not boring. So to be able to get out in front and tell a story about different stocks I like, sectors I like, and the market itself, uh, it's taken off and I'm very happy it has. And, you know, it's been a good day. We'll see what tomorrow brings because that's the one thing. I hope you never have guests that come on and you didn't promote me this way. And I, I thank you for that. This guy's seen it all. That's what's amazing about working at the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, amazing yeah. about being in the financial industry. You don't know what the next day is going to bring. I didn't know Snowflake was going to trade down 50 after hours today. Um, but now I'm watching levels. I'm watching that 200-day moving right. average. Does it do what Palo Alto Networks does? Is Nancy Pelosi buying, as I <laughs> joked with you beforehand? I don't know. But that's what makes it exciting. And to get to talk about it and then share stories, I I, I mean, it's a dream come true. Yeah. Yeah, you know, well, you uh, just very quickly, uh, Jay, you're, you're just that whole story, the recollection of reinventing yourself really reminds me of some of the classic great growth stocks that we have in our mm -hmm. model books, where if you think about it, Apple went from computers to iPods to iPhone to iPad to like everything, right? Or Netflix went from DVDs to streaming to original content. You adapt or die, right? You're reinventing. Yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, that's that's what you've done for 20 years. And, and I mean, it's pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, how'd you get that flux? Like when you were in real time, were you thinking like, I better learn this now or you know, I might you know, lose my career or whatever. Well, the financial crisis, and, and you mentioned Netflix, that's a great example of a stock that mm -hmm. I thought, oh, my God, what are they doing? I want my DVD in my mailbox. This is yeah. ridiculous. Talk <laughs> about missing a huge opportunity to buy a stock. I think that was down like $50 when that announcement came. Um, there have been different pivots, different changes. Um, to me, it's all about relationships. I think those are the most important things. And over the long term, those relationships that I made, that's what helps me get onto television. That's what helps me meet and branch out and create this brand that I guess I've created for myself. But um, living through the financial crisis, 
people ask me those questions. How did you adapt? How did you adjust? You, you, you stayed off the radar. You, you just did your job. You didn't yeah. cause any problems. You were respected on the floor. I, I worked my way up the ranks. They have a different hierarchy down there, floor officials, governors, and then you know, whatever I was, a director. Um, and your peers get to vote on you for that. That was the biggest distinguishment of my career, becoming that ultimate, that red stripe, one of six people to represent the floor in matters of the floor. So we went down from 330 people to 15, and all those people, they taught me lessons along the way, and I miss them dearly. That was a part of my life, and everyone shaped me, some positively, some negatively. Some told me what not to do, how not to be. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them all, and oh, there you and have There you have. <laughs> the facts of life? No, no. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? So because you saw you know, some pretty dramatic changes, you mentioned that you got your, your seat uh, in 1998. So if I remember correctly, was it in like 2000 that the expansion happened to five rooms uh, on the NYC? Oh, and then, oh, you, and then you know, good. yeah. so so I mean, because I, I remember when I was there, they had just expanded to the fifth room. And, yes. uh, you know, the first time I was ever on the floor and it was they had expanded to the fifth room and it was it was crazy. I mean, they, you know, still were using paper, but, you know, they had the 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 big, huge tablets that they were carrying around with them. Um, yep. And then you saw it kind of dwindle. The rooms come down. It became a little bit more of a, a, a CNBC set than it did a trading floor. So yeah. with the algos, you mentioned the algos coming in, the technology and everything like that. How did how did that change your, uh, I guess, sense of mm -hmm. from the open outcry, the psychology, the the sweat that you could actually smell, you know, when yeah. when there was fear in their eyes to, okay, now it's just all being done by computer. Uh, well, that's that's where the technical analysis really came into play uh, because you had humans in front of you. You could see human behavior. You could hear a buzz on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You walk the floor now, you hear humming of computers. You don't know if the Dow's up 200 or down 200. Back then, you knew. You could tell by the attitude, tell by the smell in the room. Uh, so the technicals are what always gave me a little advantage. I, I credit it to why I went from 330 and survived the 15. I was always one of the top producers. I was always somebody people could talk to because they didn't understand the charts. What levels are you looking at, Jay? And I would tell them. Uh, it, it was it, Technicals is always if this, then that. Yep. So mm -hmm. I, I would get them prepared. If it does this, then be prepared for that. And being on the floor, risk management, which is always job number one, job number two, and job number three. Job number four is lunch, but job number one, two, and three is risk management. Technical analysis is the perfect tool for that because if something changes, you have to change. I'm not going to just watch the computer screen and get run over because something broke out above a level or, you know, we had a little cross from undersold, oversold to just back above 30 on the RSI where you can use Bollinger Bands. I used every little indicator, anything that I thought gave me an edge. But um, the technicals are what really helped me explode my career from a trader and made myself more relevant to the trading community because not everyone understood this. And I had a good understanding, good grasp, and I could talk about it in a way that was relatable. Too many people come on and I could do it too. I could talk about Ichimoku Cloud and GAN and, and Fibonacci levels, all you want. You know, you want to go there, let's go there. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, my, I realized when you're talking to people, when I do these shows, I do it for an audience of one. That's my mother. My mother can understand what I'm talking about. I'm doing a good job. I know you guys can understand it, but I want a general audience to have an idea okay, we, we want to buy it. If it does this, this, this is how we do it. This is how we manage risk. And then make the trade their own. I, I'm not here to give advice and then, you know, get yelled at for being wrong or praised for being right. I want people to know the setup, what they're getting into, and how they should play it once they do. But knowing, first and foremost, manage risk. And maybe that made me a very boring person, a scary person, because when I bought something, when I, I still – I think of the downside before I think of the upside. Yeah, okay. Am I going to mm -hmm. cost average into this trade? When am I going to cut bait? There are so many different structured products and stocks you can trade. Don't get married to one. And too many people did. And I saw too many people blow up over the years. Yeah. You know, and so I, I got to credit your uh, uncle Ralph because uh, he is such a genius in terms of keeping a lot of the things simple. And uh, uh, for those people that don't know, Ralph Akampor, of course, is uh, he's the one that kind of started the CMT program, the, the chartered uh, market technician. And, you know, when he was on our show not not too long ago, I mean, it was like, hey, is it in an uptrend or not? You know, are there higher lows? Are there higher highs? 
it's you know sometimes just that simple. So uh, yeah. very very good stuff. Arusha, what what what, do you, what did you have? Yeah, well, first you know Ralph is the Godfather, so so right. you definitely want to want to. He's also my Godfather, so <laughs> does that make exactly. analysis? I don't know. Yeah, so, <laughs> but Jay. Uh, talking about the indicators you know after you learn because especially going through the cmt program you learn about tons and tons of different indicators and they're all super cool but how did you evolve did you did you find yourself after using them a number of years that you kept them or did you reduce and and try to simplify how, how did you evolve during your uh, oh no I, I keep evolving with those indicators mm -hmm. um i try to keep it simple so i was blessed when i studied for my cmt exam guess where i was i was on the floor of the new york stock exchange wow. guess what i did i was a market maker i had access to buy and sell stock like no one did it wasn't really my money but i treated it like it was and i would buy a stock based on we're studying bollinger bands today okay it just broke above the midline of the bollinger band it's out of That's the bollinger awesome. band coming oh, wow. back in i would test different indicators every single day one to help me study for the exam and two put it to work that's the only way you really learn is if you kind of put it to work so paper trade write notes as you're doing these indicators the indicators that work for me the simplest ones are macd crossovers where there are rsi levels um especially when we're oversold we go to you know when we're oversold and we go back uh i'm not like we're oversold we go back below 70 i probably mm -hmm. want to sell it oversold doesn't mean you have to sell the stock it means it may be getting a little toppy here or trend sideways for a little while so those are the simple ones moving averages and uh vwap trading uh my relationship with brian shannon started at a cmt event i brought him to the floor of the new york stock exchange when i was on a panel and i said the biggest change in the industry is people don't care about price when they come in and they ask me jay how's ibm look this morning they don't care if it's down two dollars yep. they want to know the volume Oh, 20,000 shares. Here's 2,000 shares to buy. I just want to be 10% of the volume. So I brought mm -hmm. Brian down and he sat with me as we opened IBM, ironically enough. And he, he was floored that all they cared about was volume. Everyone was volume weighted average price. And, you know, I, I will take a little credit. Brian said nice things about me in his book. I was part of the inspiration for him to write that second book, which he had to do because he was on to something so big. Yeah. So any day trader, swing trader that's not using average volume weighted price, then they're missing out because that's what everyone does. And the thing that scares me because only price pays is when I was trading on the floor, you know, your job wasn't to be average. Your job was to do very well. I didn't go to right. school to be average, but yeah. the way people execute stock, if they're average or God forbid they beat it by a penny, you did a great job. You're, you're getting rewarded with more order flow. It's hard for me to fathom, but that's the way it is. And so if you don't know your VWAP levels and you're not following that, you're, you're missing out on what's really happening behind the scenes. And then algorithmic trading. Mm -hmm. Look at stocks that stop to the penny on 50-day and 200-day moving averages. It floors me that it's happening. Look at Apple this week. It rallied on the news that they're not making a car. Don't get me started. They were never <laughs> making a car. But it rallied on that news. Where did it rally up to? A flattening 200-day moving average to the penny. And then yeah. it came in. Tell me that's not algos behind the scenes. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when we uh, come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the macro side of things since we've kind of covered some of the technical parts. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Trading Apple, sometimes you get the bear. Sometimes it gets you. Single stock daily leveraged and inverse ETFs from Directions. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast. It's Justin Nielsen here, your host, along with Arusha Paris, who joins me every week. He is a portfolio manager and analyst at O'Neill Global Advisors. And our special guest this week is Jay Woods. He's chief uh, strategist, market strategist over at Freedom Capital Markets. And, uh, you know, he's been on the floor of the exchange for a long time. Uh, he's seen a lot, but as he mentioned, he hasn't seen it all. So let's talk a little bit. We've been chatting about charts and the psychology and everything. Let's kind of step a little bit back and get uh, the your perspective on the markets and kind of that macro element, because so many people, it seems like, have been paying attention to interest rates and inflation. And, you know, everyone started turning into the the, the macro expert. I mean, Joe Fahmy uh, kind of jokes all the time, you know, when when everyone's looking at macro, that's when you know you're in a lot of trouble. So uh, what's what's your take on the macro? How important is it? And you know, we've got a PCE report that's probably going to be dropping at the same time as this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so that, that that's our next thing that we have to contend with. So what's what's your take on it all? 
Yeah, well, uh, of course it's important, but uh, it doesn't always mean we're going to react as the macro uh, environment suggests we may want to react. Uh, I remember coming into all the way back to December uh, that people <laughs> started calling for six rate cuts, which I, I yeah. never understood that. I was always in the Neither three to four I. camp. I don't know where that, those numbers came from. And, and the S&P was trading at 4,800. And uh, now, and, and the 10-year was under, it was three and three quarters percent, 3.75. And now where are we? We're just under 5,100 in the S&P. We're not calling for six rate cuts. We're calling for maybe three, still anxiously awaiting uh, what, Data will come out, could be the PCE, uh, that says, all right, uh, they've got inflation under control. The soft landing narrative is back on the table, and we can cut a quarter point because uh, our hikes, are they, they did the job they were supposed to do. I am just following the price action, and two things ha had me very interested when we talk about watching uh, you know, the overall narrative, inflationary narrative, the CPI and the FOMC meeting. Uh, the FOMC meeting, uh, when was it, three weeks ago at this point, when Powell was talking and they weren't cutting rates and it didn't look like they're going to cut rates anytime soon, what happened in the market? The S&P 500 sold off 1.5%. What did we do this stuff quit three days after that? Everyone was looking, oh my God, this is it. They're, they're not going to cut. We, we slowly made it back. And the tenure didn't spike. And that is what's important. The 10-year is gradually trading higher, but gradual. So we're not seeing those big volatile moments that's causing the equity market to get jittery. And then let's go to the CPI, which is the one data point that does move markets. I, I know the PCE, and we'll get to that in a second, is the Fed's preferred inflationary measure, but the CPI moves markets. We've seen pivots. We've seen key reversal days going back to October a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. where the CPI was what did it. Uh, we were down another one and a half percent, and the CPI came in a little hot. People are saying, okay, now we're, we don't have to cut rates. Uh, we have to kind of, now could they raise rates again? Who knows? But the market got jittery for a day. And then we slowly made it back. And then it was about NVIDIA's earnings. And NVIDIA, is it going to follow Palo Alto Networks? No, it didn't. It did well. And my God, they just continue to crush it on all cylinders. And maybe that saved the market, as I heard somebody say today. I think that's ridiculous. One stock's not going to crush or save the market. It will dictate uh, a move over a few days, but it's not going to be the be-all and end-all. And then tomorrow, the PCE the Fed's preferred inflationary gauge. We're looking year over year to go from 2.9 down to 2.8. Continued progress. Overall, on the inflationary front, these data points, CPI, PPI, PCE, they've all trended lower. When they've come in hotter, the overall trend is still trending down. So we're mm -hmm. still landing this plane, but we're not doing it as quickly as the six rate cut <laughs> camp would like us to do so. But the S&P 500, is making a new high every single time these numbers come in a little hotter than expected. I'll follow price action. And yes, I'll be nervous at 8.30 when this number comes in. If it comes in hotter than expected, what are we going to do? Sell off 1.5%? Well, we kind of have that built in based on FOMC and CPI. Will we go down 2%? We haven't had a 2% drop yet in the S&P 500 in 85 days. That is a pretty long time. I think it was uh, Bespoke that had a stat since like 1970. We, we've had very few days over 70, uh, only five times where we've gone 100 days without a 2% pullback in the S&P 500. It's coming, I mean, but we're streaking right now. Let's enjoy it. But th this economic data, yeah, it, it's going to make headlines because there's nothing else going on. We're 90% we're done earnings season coming into this week. So the catalyst that can take us higher, is it the PC? I don't know. I don't know what the next catalyst is to take us higher. So I'm in the camp that we may have peaked out for the near term. Seasonally, you look at it, and, and Ryan Dietrich had a great tweet, which I retweeted this morning. Uh, we are in that presidential cycle where we should pull back. We've had a tremendous run. Let's bring it back. And then what has led over the last three months? This is the thing that shocks people. You go back three months, the S&P 500 is up 11%. The Dow's up 10%. NASDAQ composite up 12.28%. NASDAQ 100 up 12.25%. The Russell 2000 up 14.29%. It is still leading right now, and people don't believe it. They, they're so mm -hmm. focused on these seven stocks. They, that narrative has passed us on. There are great stocks there. I mean, NVIDIA, Meta, my God. But right now, we're going to look for inflationary numbers tomorrow. 
if they come in cooler than maybe we'll talk about, hey, let's let's put the uh, June definite cut on the table and may it, it could happen as well. I don't know, but it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be interesting how the market reacts and uh, a pullback to me. I kind of expect it. And we have levels technically where the market should get buyers. And we've seen it down one and a half percent twice now. And then you look at where we've come from, maybe psychologically 5,000 is a new floor and not the ceiling. It mm -hmm. didn't really last as a ceiling very long. And then you've got rising 50-day moving averages, uptrend lines. Uh, these are all normal things. So a 5% retracement, I don't think that's a big call to make. I, I, I think that's normal market behavior. But the way the market is trending, the seasonal factors, we should get some sort of pullback. We should get it soon. And maybe the PCE is the catalyst for that tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Now, Jay, in, in many ways, this has been kind of a lockout rally. Uh, what's kind, kind of the sentiment that you've heard, you know, after talking to so many people over the last few months? You know, how, how was that sentiment during that time as the market just kept crawling up, kept crawling up? It, it, the sentiment is frustration. And those yeah. are some of the toughest markets as a trader to trade because you're seeing the data points, you're reading the headlines, and you're, you're discounting price action. And it doesn't make sense. Why did we only sell off one day, one and a half percent, then one day, one and a half percent? Where's the follow through? This doesn't make sense to me. But underneath the surface, the breadth has been mixed, but the stocks that make up the Russell, 49% of the Russell is made up of the XLI. The XL, uh, I'm, I'm missing my XLF, XL. XLF. It's, it's healthcare and it's XLB. financial. The regionals mm -hmm. have held it back. But in the healthcare space, biotech's a big part of that. And guess what just broke out yep. two days ago? Biotech. So the surface rotation's happening. And here, here's a fun stat for you. A week ago, two weeks ago today, today being Thursday when this airs, guess what? 10 of 11 sectors in the S&P selects ETF sectors were up one sector was down it was technology that to me said thing has changed technology was down and everything was up okay the market didn't really skyrocket because technology is so heavy weighted in the s p 500 uh the dow stocks in the technology sector were down point wise it hurt us i think unh may have been down that day too the biggest weighting in the dow but overall 10 of 11 sectors up it's not technology something's changed and i want to be part of that change so i look at materials breaking out i look at industrials already broken out healthcare breaking out yeah you know biotech there are some strong things and yes this is technical fundamentally nothing's really changed nothing has changed we're still higher for longer we've absorbed it and maybe this is the new normal. People have to put an asterisk by COVID and forget it happened. I'm sorry. We had the greatest rally during a pandemic, which makes no sense when you say that out loud. <laughs> right. rally yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> With the greatest amount of uncertainty. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I, I didn't know if I would, you know, yeah. humans would ever come back to this building behind me. I did not yeah. know that. Um, but we rallied and it got a little too euphoric. Now what we're seeing are retracements, beautiful saucer bottoms. You know, we, we already saw Microsoft rebound, go roundabout, break out. NVIDIA, boom, it's, it's way ahead of the game. But stocks that took a little while to round out are rounding out and breaking out. I like that. And then stocks that have been dogs. Look at Pfizer. Look at Bristol-Myers. J&J. They stopped mm -hmm. going down. Stop going down is very important. And now maybe they base, maybe they take another leg lower. I don't know. But I don't think this economic data point that's going to come out or anything in the next few weeks ahead of the FOMC meeting are going to scare people to a point where this bull market run is over. I think it's going to you know, do what we do when we run very far, very fast. We kind of take a break yeah. and we regroup. And then the regroup is probably going to go in the existence of the trend. The trend is higher and the trend is broadening. I'm very bullish on that. I don't think it's going to run away from us, but we're going to have opportunities to buy. And that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think uh, what we're looking at here with the sector rotation, you, you brought up the strength in the Russell 2000. And I mean, we, we were having this you know discussion a couple of days ago and it, the Russell just got stronger you know, in, mm -hmm. in, in the meantime. Um, but do you think this is more of a rotation money coming from the Magnificent Seven? I mean, the Apple, you know, Apple and Alphabet are not looking so magnificent anymore. But um, do you think the money's coming from there into these areas? Or is this more complementary? Like, hey, this is more back to the lift all boats 
that we just haven't seen as much because it's been dominated by Magnificent Seven. Well, we're we're not lifting all boats. There's no euphoria. Sentiment is weak. Traders are puzzled. Um, I I don't sense that. I think this is clearly a rotation. I think that example where technology is down and the other ten sectors are mm -hmm. up. Money's just rotating out of technology into these sectors. Uh, you look at some of those Mag 7 names. Tesla, it's rallying into downtrends here. It's giving you an opportunity to short it again. Uh, the money is coming out of these big names, and they're going to same place. Apple is not going anywhere right now. I wouldn't, if I owned it, I wouldn't sell it in panic and get out of the name. But it's not going to lead us. And where is the leadership? And that's what I look for. I don't think it's a tide is going to race off, you know, you run into all boats, but when you look for things, you look for opportunities. The so Russell is still 17% off its all-time high. That's an opportunity. It's got something to reverse. You have mean reversion possibilities in some of these right. dogs. I don't like to buy stocks on mean reversions, but they do happen. Uh, and you may see money go into those places. And then the cash on the sidelines. There's a record amount. I think it was $6.5 trillion last time I, yeah. I, I took a peek. On the sidelines, people need to get into this market. Some people are into Bitcoin. We've seen what Bitcoin has been doing uh, now that it's legitimate by the SEC because of its ETFs and Ethereum looks like it's poised to do the same thing. So there is a reallocation of assets. There is some money on the sidelines coming into this market, but this is not a tide lifts all boats. And you're, we're seeing it through earnings season. Those that do well, you know, they're rewarded. They look at Okta after hours. Let's see if it continues into, into morning trading. But uh, then those that don't do well, or there's big news like a snowflake, like a Palo Alto Networks, they get punished. And, uh, you know, they're in pretty strong sectors from what I can tell. So when Palo gets hit and the other stocks manage to, to they go down in unison, but they start coming back and tell their own stories, th that's positive. Uh, so I think people are being very selective. And they're picking their spots wisely. And semiconductors and cybersecurity stocks, they're still in early innings, as a Dan Ives would definitely tell you. And I agree, this is more of a 1995 moment than a 99-2000.com euphoric moment. We're not mm -hmm. there. Uh, will we get there? Maybe we do. Uh, I, I hope so. But when we do... I bet you I'll come on your show and I'll be a little bearish. If we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you let us know when that moment happens and you've got a spot. <laughs> we'll, we'll you got it. it for you. <laughs> um, so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about levels because you've talked about how important levels are for you. Do you use levels? Uh, you, you mentioned some like five thousand for the S and P five hundred. Are you using levels that much for the um, for for the indexes or are of you course. talking more individual stocks? Yeah. So no, I I, I use levels for everything. I mean, the yeah. first thing you do when when you mention a symbol I don't know anything about it. I punch in the symbol. I look at the chart. The mm -hmm. chart tells the story. Uh, mm -hmm. Levels of support and resistance are basic. Basic, you know, like, you know, you say, keep it simple. We talked about that in the last segment. Yeah. Okay. This is where buyers come in. This is where sellers come in. Okay. Every time Russell 2000 is a perfect example. I don't need a chart to know that it was going sideways for two years. Right. It finally broke out. Yeah. You know, we, IWM is what we should use for the Russell. If you want to mm -hmm. throw that up uh, for the audience here. Uh, IWM 200, which is Russell 2000, 2000. We don't have a hat mm -hmm. for that. We do have an S&P 500, 5000 hat. <laughs> those, those big numbers are for hats. They're, they, they really, they're psychological. They're not specific levels. But in the case of the Russell and the IWM, we broke out of a long neutral range and we went, then we failed. And a lot of people were calling for bear traps. They called this. No, it didn't happen. But they didn't put in perspective. They didn't say, wait a second. It was a 27% move from the October 27 low to the late December high. It retraced 8.5%. That's a third. Okay, that's a normal healthy retracement. Right. And where did it hold? Held at a rising 50-day moving average. Every time it was in that chop zone, that neutral zone, I like to call it chop zone, it was above and below all its moving averages. It's what I call a hot mess. Well, it's kind of got structure to it right now. Yeah. And from a risk-reward setup, it's great. Use your 50-day, you know, give yourself 2% below just in case. You don't want to use it exactly. But the risk-reward setup is favorable to a bullish narrative, especially if the IWM can break above 205, 205.49 I see here. Mm -hmm. um, and we know it has room to run. It's a lagging index. So if this broadening is happening, you want to be there. Is it sexy? Hell no. No, I don't want to talk 
you know, at the bar about stocks in the Russell, unless it's, you know, that happy super fun stock, uh, SMCI. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's 1.7% of the Russell. Look that one up. When's the last time that happened? There was a stock during .com. So they're going to graduate to the bigger leagues, and they'll be out of the index, and Celsius will be your number one holding in in the Russell, although that should probably get graduate higher. But you don't really talk about one specific stock. You talk about sectors when you talk about the Russell, Mm -hmm. and that's why I like this narrative when I see sectors breaking out that are predominantly involved in this index it should lead us higher and use that rising 50 day. We got down, we tested, we held, we got up, we came down. We haven't made the new high. We haven't officially broken out, but we're seeing an ascending triangle and we're going into an uptrend, I believe. And that's the last of the major indexes that, you know, I mean, we can call other indexes major if you like, that Mm -hmm. haven't now haven't gone full circle. Will it go full circle circle and get that 17% it hasn't gone to? Probably, but uh, you know, I, it's not going to happen overnight. It's boring. It's slow. And if the interest rate narrative stays high for longer, you have a fundamental reason why they're not coming for small caps. But when we finally get that cut, who's going to benefit the most? Small caps. So yeah. uh, that that's how I look at that setup, and that's how I look at levels and support resistance, floor ceilings. Something changes. It goes through the floor. All right, risk management. Get out, get back in at another time. It, 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 it doesn't have to sound so petty and simple, but it really is if you're just managing basic risk. If you want to day trade these things, then we can go into a deeper dive and we can get our a, a anchored VWAP levels and we can, we can really have fun mm-hmm. with it. But as an analyst now and not as that day trader, um, I'm trying to look at the big picture, take that top-down approach. You look at the indexes, then you look at the 11 sectors. Then you look at the stocks that are the most dominant in those 11 sectors. So if we're talking energy. I don't know ExxonMobil and I don't know Chevron. That's 45% of the XLE. Right. Yeah. That's what moves it. The industrials, the materials, healthcare, they don't have that major player. Mm-hmm. It's, it's So you need more stocks to participate in those indices for them to rally starting to happen. Well, let's talk a little bit about financials because you brought that up earlier. Uh, you know how industrials, financials, and and healthcare forty nine percent of the Russell two thousand. And you know last year when the whole Silicon Valley Bank thing happened, um, you know the regional banks were I think at the time maybe twenty percent of the Russell. You know, so I mean it really you know had an effect. The I think the makeup now is a little bit less. You know, maybe closer to fifteen sixteen percent regional banks, but. It's interesting that even with the New York Community Bank, you know, kind of rumble, you know, and and what that's done to regional banks, um, you know, because if you pull up KRE, you know, it kind of, mm-hmm. you know, hit KRE again. Um, yeah. But even despite that, the Russell is still kind of chugging along, even though it's got kind of like that that headwind. So is that, um, you know, maybe, maybe talk a little bit about that and what that yeah. means Yeah, and, and by the way, Justin, you were spot on with your numbers there. The regional okay. banks were 20%, so kudos to you. Um, it was at the end of the year because they have been beaten down so much that industrials actually took financials as the number one waiting by, by a, you know, a skosh. Um, yeah, the, the regional banks, back last March, that was scary. And it was a moment that we kind of seen before. Where did we see that? We saw it in the financial crisis. It really reminded me, brought me back to that because you're seeing banks fail and they were shooting first and asking questions later and mm-hmm. everything was getting hammered. For us, it's an opportunity. You're like, okay, why is Comerica getting hurt? They're, they're okay. Key Bank didn't deserve this treatment, but they just shot it. And then it was I don't remember the one bank. There were two banks that got hit one day. One came out and said, no, our balance sheet is fine. We had more deposits this month. It went up and another one went down. And all of a sudden they started to say, all right, let's look at them individually. And they stopped taking them all down. Just like the tide lifts all boats, the tide went out to sea and the regional banks went down with them. And then they started a slow process of bottoming. And then we got another little scare recently and we sold off a bit more. We haven't made that full roundabout. It's going to take a little while longer because there still seem to be problems there. I am not the fundamental deep dive regional bank guy to have on your show to say which banks are going to be (laughs) facing problems, you know, mortgage crisis, all these things. Uh, But technically, there's something that isn't right. They haven't broken back out. The financials that are winning, look at Goldman Sachs, look at JP Morgan, look at Morgan Stanley, look at your, 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 your visas and your MasterCards yeah. of the world. Wow. Uh, these are strong 
uptrend strong breakouts, and, and we're still waiting on, on some of them. Goldman is, is ready to go up five today. Uh, that's where I think the strength is. And, you know, the regionals, they may still take some time to come back, and there still may be another one or two that have some real estate issues going forward. So if the regionals were in play right now, yes, that Russell would be a lot higher than it is. Uh, but thankfully, there's enough within the index minus the regionals that that are doing the heavy lifting keeping us in that near term uptrend hoping to break us out maybe the regionals help break us out they report earlier than everybody else so that cycle will start in about four to five weeks mm -hmm. yeah and, and to end the segment jay yeah thoughts on amazon going into the dow and uber into transports <laughs> all right, all right. I, I i am a geek when it comes to the history of the dow and what stocks were in it the first thing i did when i, I got my job i we had wall street journals newspapers we'd open we'd read them and i memorized the 30 dow stocks and bethlehem steel and woolworths letter z yeah. these were things these were the 30 most important stocks and then they put Walgreens Boots Alliance into the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and I had a conniption. I never understood. I didn't even understand what Boots Alliance was. I thought it was a shoe company. It's a London-based uh, pharmaceutical company, and and yes, they, the people there hate me because I say this all the time. But the stock didn't make sense. Why not CVS if you're going to go that route? I know right. CVS, I, I, mm -hmm. but anyway, I digress. The the Dow, they're a little asleep at the wheel. I want to I want to find out who's on this committee. I want to be on this committee. Uh, I feel I would add value. So if you have connections, someone in this audience knows, hey, uh, Jay Woods is looking to get on the uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average Committee or the Transportation Average. They put Uber in. This is why indexing is great because the indexes finally get it right. Yeah. Uber goes in. What's the valuation? $90 billion? What did they kick out? JetBlue. The sixth, seventh biggest airline? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's the sixth that they allow the spirit merger to happen. But JetBlue is out. So the index itself is, is stronger. And if you're in the index, you're going to do better. Amazon, more representative. I know Walmart splitting three for one probably helped the Dow people make that decision for them. But why did we need Walgreens in there? And yes, there are people out there that have this contrarian view. Well, if it gets kicked out, I want to buy it because they remember GE. They remember ExxonMobil. But- there are a lot of dogs that got kicked out. Beth Steele and Woolworth, you bought those when they got kicked out. God bless you. You, you have no money left. Uh, but Amazon, to me, it, it belonged in there. It's something everyone knows. You have $1.7 trillion company. Um, I prefer my stocks to be at the New York Stock Exchange. But uh, I've, I've gotten over when Cisco and Microsoft got added years ago and Intel. There are seven NASDAQ stocks still. in it, But that's representative of what we do. We are as a country. And those 30 Dow stocks are just as important to me as those 500 S&P 500 stocks. You overlap. And I did this in my newsletter last week. Overlap the last 50 years, the Dow and the S&P. I don't know why, but they do mirror each other. It's 30 mm -hmm. stocks versus 500 and market cap weighted versus price cap weighted. We can go down that road. But when Amazon got put in, I I, I jumped for joy. It belongs in the index. Uh, I can suggest other moves too. But that if there's a stock... That isn't more emblematic of the American, you know, culture. <laughs> right. I mean, who doesn't, who's not influenced every day by Amazon? Yeah. And then I like stocks and uptrends. This one's got a pretty good one. Talk about stocks that have gone roundabout, finally breaking out. 185 is the all-time high there. I want to see it get there. Uh, you know, someone's been selling a lot of stock lately. It's kind of been the the roof on it. Uh, but uh, once once we get through the, you know, I'm blanking on the Amazon uh, CEO's, the you know, ex-Amazon CEO's. Um, Jeff going Bezos. To his job. Yeah. Jeff Bezos, yeah. How do I forget? I'm getting old. <laughs> well, hey, you know, one, he, he's no longer important, right? Now that he uh, retired well, from his uh, he's position. <laughs> billions of dollars worth of yeah. stock. He's, he's resistant. So let's get him out of there. Um, you know, and, and, and Uncle Warren is supporting Occidental Petroleum all these years. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, support resistance do have faces behind them sometimes. And right now, resistance in Amazon has been Bezos. Support in Oxy has been Buffett. Mm -hmm. So, you know what, just uh, I, I know this is going to be the end of the segment, but I've got to ask you because, you know, one of the things that people have been commenting on, and you, you mentioned this, that, gosh, the waiting now in so few stocks is, is is crazy and the technology, how important that's become. Well, now the Dow Jones Industrials has Cisco, Intel, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft. I mean, it's it's starting to look a lot more you know, technology. I mean, I guess that is the industry now, but what's what's your kind of feeling on how technology-based that index has become? 
Yeah, and Salesforce.com, which yeah, is reported earning. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it it's it's great. Still has good old big blue in there, IBM, and IBM looks better mm -hmm. than uh Cisco and an Intel, I'll tell you that much. Um it, it you know, they they could change it up a little more quickly and be more emblematic of the times. And IBM could have been kicked out and brought back in. Um, but it, it is important. They have a strong technology base, but the Dow Jones industrial it doesn't really mean industrial stocks. So it would be John Deere, Caterpillar, and right. and then some defense as well. No, it, it it's it's really Dow Jones is just the average of the thirty best stocks that are more representative of the U.S. economy. That's how I look at it. They still call it the industrial average, so they want to change their name, change their name. But um, that that to me is still emblematic of what the committee feels are the thirty best stocks. Uh, the fact they finally brought Apple in there in 2013, a long time coming. NVIDIA, they split their stock last time they got this pricey. I had a feeling that was maybe because it could go into one of these, it could go into the Dow. Uh, that is the leader in the, you know, to give me NVIDIA, get rid of Intel, fine. Get rid of Cisco, give me anything else. Cisco's done nothing for 20, 25 years. Look at that chart. Um, you know, maybe Especially this month yeah, maybe Splunk will finally put it over the top. Yeah. I don't know. And that's a little tongue in cheek. But um, yeah, I, I love watching the indices. I, I love price weighted. If you don't follow UNH, though, and you follow the Dow, then you're misguided because it's the most expensive, most important stock in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Is UNH, United Healthcare, the most important stock? out there no but if you're following the dow jones industrial average you better know what it's doing uh, and then intel you don't have to worry about because it go up you know is verizon still the dow it is like it, it it you don't have to worry about it it's not going anywhere um i you know i skate where the puck is and the puck is in these leaders that continue to you know bring out new technology enhance and and grow and some of these stocks are a little stagnant the dow people will eventually get to them there's no rush you know you don't want to wake them up they're sleeping but uh i'm happy that they they brought amazon in and kicked walgreens out mm -hmm. very good well when we come back we're going to talk about a little bit more in depth on some of the sector analysis that you started with here into some individual stocks so stay tuned we'll be right back trading tesla sometimes you get the bear Sometimes it gets you. Single stock daily leveraged and inverse ETFs from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's objectives, risk, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast. This is Justin Nielsen here, your host, along with Arusha Pierce, who joins me every week from O'Neill Global Advisors and our special guest this week, Jay Woods. He's chief market strategist over at Freedom Capital Markets. And uh, you, you mentioned that you had a newsletter, Jay. So where's where's the best place that folks can kind of get some more information on your thoughts on the market on a regular basis. Yeah, thank you. Um, if they follow me on Twitter, jwoods3, jaywoods3 at Twitter, uh, you can see my pin tweet. Not not in my bio. That's a sub stack. That's something different. In, in my pin tweet is the Freedom Capital Markets newsletter. You can click on that, sign up every Monday. It comes to your inbox. And it's very simple. Just uh, keeping it simple. What are we watching this week? So this week we, we were watching the PCE, a uh, little NVIDIA hangover possibly. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, what earnings are on the docket, what economic data is coming. So this week we'll be talking about stocks like DocuSign and Costco. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun, quick little read in your inbox. And it gives you perspective of what we're watching every week. Awesome. Well, let's get into some of the stocks that are on your radar right now. And uh, you you mentioned healthcare. Uh, XLV, of course, is the sector spider ETF for healthcare, and that's that's been looking a lot stronger. Uh, you mentioned um, you know the biomed, biotechs, uh, XBI has been looking strong. But you're kind of going in a little bit of a different direction with HCA. Talk to us a little bit about HCA. Yeah, I, I want to thank some of the smart money out there for putting this on my radar. It's something technically that is broken out that I love. It's reversed and broken out, and uh, it looks like it's going to continue trend higher. But what happened last week? 13F filings came out. Those 13Fs are filed quarterly. They're a delayed indicator. It comes out 45 days after the quarter ends. But two people of interest added them as new position. HCA is now a new position for David Tupper, his Appaloosa fund, and Michael Berry, uh, you know, the famous short seller oh, from the big short. His big sky short, fund. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Both took these positions on. And when I see new positions in the 13F filings, I don't really pay too much attention, but I will look into them. And HCA technically, it's got my blessing. Full roundabout, gap up, breakout flag, go again. 
thank you very much. But what does HCA do? Let's look under the hood. Let's let's tell the fundamental story because I'm sure that's why these smart money investors are in it. It's employ employs over 200,000 people based out of Nashville, Tennessee, and it's elder care. It primary focuses elder care. I heard this stat on Josh Brown's show the other day. Josh, a good friend. The next four years, more people turn 65 than any other span in our lifetime. This is a growing demographic. What do they do? They take care of the elder. We're living longer. This is a growth industry. So HCA has got triple blessings for me. It's got my technicals, checkbox number one. It's got fundamentals, checkbox number two. And then it's got some smart money. I'll throw that into checkbox number three. So the risk reward setup is there. The long-term fundamental story is there. And this is what I believe you can buy and put away because it's going to be very predominant in its field for a long time to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and uh, it's, uh, I mean, accelerating uh, revenue like right. for six quarters in a row right there. Yeah. And also when you look at a monthly chart, all-time highs. What's better than all-time highs? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and now do you look at kind of competition, um, other other areas that might kind of disrupt this uh, this stock or, um, you know, anything like that when you're kind of doing your analysis? No, I, I look what else in that sector will benefit. And uh, how about mm -hmm. some hip replacement? Uh, Stryker. Uh, <laughs> Stryker is a stock that has a great base broken out. And, and, and the longer the base, the higher the space. We, we base sideways for a while. We're just breaking out. Uh, to me, this is a name that's had runs in the past, and I believe it's on a, a nice upward trajectory. It's not going to make headlines. It's not sexy. It's not going to be focused on your financial news networks, but we're focusing on it here for your listeners. And I think the risk reward setup is great. If it fails, if it breaks back below that old resistance level, which should act as support, you get out, you move on. Uh, but to me, Given the fundamental story, the demographic again, and the healthcare rotation, I think Stryker has a lot of room to run here. Mm -hmm. And I should mention that I do own a position in this myself. Uh, I think I bought that in uh, January uh, before the earnings. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's something I'm sitting with for now. And and you know what? I think uh, David Keller, when he was on our show, he he brought this one up. You mentioned David earlier. So, uh, so you so Jay, like, you can check the smart money box for a striker. <laughs> yeah, because David Wilson. Keller. Yeah, yeah, for David oh, Keller. Not yeah, for yeah, David Josh, Keller, not David for Justin. Okay. Oh, for God, right. goodness sakes. Uh, so talk <laughs> talk a little bit more about um, you know are, are there any of these other boxes that you know. When, when you look at the fundamental story, uh, again, you know, a lot of times we look at these numbers at the bottom, you can see that the earnings uh, have been growing, you know, double digit, not huge, but, you know, yeah. double digit, 13%, 16%, 15%, uh, and the revenue also in the double digit range, you know, 11% to 12%. Um, yeah, you know, not Polls. Yes, these are things I do look at. But, you know, the first thing I'll always do is follow the price action and then I'll do the dive deeper into it. And once you do that dive, uh, it, it does check a lot of boxes. Um, and, you know, I, I always like I believe it's the Peter Lynch mentality. Buy what you know, buy what you use. Well, mm -hmm. this is something I may know and use very soon uh, <laughs> as I age. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm getting the stock first and then maybe the hip replacement or the knee later on in life. To, to help fund, you know, the, the stock profits can be used to help fund the hip replacement. Um, exactly. And exactly. The, on the smart money uh, side, uh, one of the things that we sometimes look at, we have an owners and funds area in the in the market smith. And we can see that Fidelity Contra Fund, Will Danoff is uh, one of the portfolio managers there that we really like to follow, uh, has a position that is a really huge fund. So uh, even a 0.13% position is is uh, <laughs> something of size uh, there. You can see that. Um, and uh, yeah, anything else on Striker before we move on? No, I, I think uh, we kept it simple and yeah. I like to keep it simple. I mean, I could have given you some Fibonacci levels if you want them, <laughs> right. but yeah, let's, let's, let's move on. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and give a preview because, uh, again, you mentioned your newsletter where you go through some stocks uh, that are on your radar. And one of the stocks you're going to be talking about in your newsletter is DocuSign. And it yeah. feels like we haven't been talking about DocuSign for a while. This was one of the COVID darlings, you know, 2020, you know, everyone was like, well, gosh, you know, forget these wet signatures. Let's go e-signature. And they just yeah. really seem to dominate. Uh, everyone was afraid that Adobe was going to eat their lunch, uh, mm -hmm. but they really you know, maintained a leadership position um, there. So uh, what's what's your take on DocuSign? Uh, something that's um, been out take, of favor. My, my take is from a risk reward point of view, it looks like the setup is a little more favorable for the bulls and you have it out. You may have to rip this one out of your portfolio immediately if you're playing it for earnings. 
take your loss and move on. But given the fact that we have a constructive base, we have a lot to reverse. This thing was in the 200s. Uh, we're at 300. I mean, that's that. I would never give an upside target like that. But it is trending down. The downtrend's been broken. So one, it stopped going down. Two, it's basing. Now the base is making higher lows. It's holding above its 200-day moving average. Technically, it reminds me a little of a Carvana, where we saw that same exact thing happen. A lot of fundamentalists hate Carvana, but I'll tell you right now, from a technical point of view, knowing that there was short interest in that one as well, this stock has rallied. I don't know the short interest off the top of my head in DocuSign, but right now the setup is trending above its 200-day moving average. It's flattening, starting to turn up. I think if you get positive reaction to earnings, maybe they guide that this stock can gap. You, if you're not in it, maybe you want to buy that gap. Put your stops closely when you buy gaps on an opening to like two and a half, three percent below. But it can run and it could run quickly. So the setup for DocuSign to me, risk reward point of view, it is very appetizing and it may be worth a flyer next week. And I'll focus on it in my newsletter. Mm -hmm. and so generally point, going into earnings, uh, how do you, do you adjust for the risk there? Maybe going with a smaller oh, position if you man. wanted to buy before earnings or. Uh, I had a strict rule, especially when I was a market maker on the floor. If, if ICE was one of the stocks I was the market maker for, I would be flat going into earnings every single time. I do not trade stocks for earnings. If I'm a long-term shareholder, I own Google, I, I, I'm not even going to care about earnings because the earnings aren't going to change my mind unless the trend has a major change. Mm -hmm. uh, so... If I believe it's a long-term holding, then I don't worry about earnings. I'm not trading it for earnings. If I want to take a little bit more risk on, like in a DocuSign, I'm not recommending anyone do this. But if you do, the parameters are there. And if it fails, get out. Do not make this a long-term investment. This is a trade opportunity. Uh, so I wouldn't recommend buying it into earnings. I will chase a gap. I will. I love gaps. I mean, if you want to go, we can do a whole special on trading gaps. Those things are important to me. But uh, right now, seeing that something has changed, it's got my interest and it's worth talking about. It's worth focusing on. And if someone wants to take a shot, know the risk reward. I think the setup is there that the risk outweighs the, the reward outweighs the risk in this case. Yeah. And and that's that's such a key point. You brought up risk management as being rule number one, two, and three. And if you can keep that small, you know, and again, you've got a lot of room to potentially recover. Um, you can be wrong a lot of times if you keep that, you know, if, if you keep your risk small and your reward potential large. So, I mean, oh, it, that seems like an easy. I'm, I'm wrong all the time, but, right. you know, you want to keep things simple. This goes back to Alan Shaw level two CMT class I took in 1993. Four things, and I don't know where he stole this from, but I I credit Alan, the late Alan Shaw. Um, four things happen when you get into a trade as a trader, and I've seen them all. We've all seen them all. You have a small gain and a small loss. These are normal things. You can have a big gain. That's the goal. And you can have a big loss. If you're going to survive in this industry, you got to avoid one thing. Avoid the big loss. Check mm -hmm. your ego at the door. I got that small loss. I'm getting out. Maybe I would have been right. Maybe this could be an investment over time. But avoid the big loss and live to play another day. Uh, right. That is how every trader, day trader, swing trader, long-term trader, if you are putting too much allocation into one asset and you are going to take the big loss, guess what? You're not going to be able to put it anywhere else. So you take that small loss. You move on to something else. There are 6,000 different asset classes, ETFs, <laughs> they keep coming out with new ones every single day. Don't get married to this DocuSign because the risk-reward setup was good. And, oh, crap, I missed it. Well, I'll cost average into it. Or, uh, no, your game plan is your game plan, and a little loss is going to happen. And, yes, it, it stinks when they do. But if you can leave the behavioral and the ego at the door and you take that little loss, you move on. You can yell and scream at me if I'm the reason you got into this trade. That's fine. It'd be like I'm home. And, uh, <laughs> you know, everything, you know, everything, you know, you, you just move on to, to the next idea. There are always ideas out there. That's what's great about the stock market. 
Yeah. Well, hey, Jay, it was such a pleasure having you. Uh, again, for those that want to kind of check out some of his stuff, uh, go to at Jay Woods, the number three uh, on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. You can find find him there, some pinned tweets that'll get you to his newsletter uh, that he does as the chief global strategist for freedoms, uh, Freedom Capital Markets. So Jay, once again, uh, pleasure having you on. I, I can't believe we didn't do this sooner. So you'll, okay. we'll definitely have you on again. It was It was a really great time. This was fun. Joe Palmi said it was going to be a nightmare from hell, but no. We really enjoyed this. Yeah, okay. don't listen to Joe. Yeah, we don't like that. Joe, Joe says a lot of things. <laughs> so, no, Joe, yeah. nothing but peace and love from Joe. He's a big fan, as am I. Yeah. Great having you, Jay. Take care. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Please join us next week. We're going to have Scott Sinclair, one of our favorites. Uh, he, of course, is the senior. Well, he's he's what? Arusha's old job. What was your job? Uh, the, the head of the premium products. So yep. he's got some stuff to talk about because we've got our new product market surge coming out, uh, you know, kind of replacing market Smith. So he's going to talk about a lot of the things that are going on there. So we can't wait to hear all of the details from Scott St. Clair. So hope you join us for that next week. Uh, hope you all have a great leap year day, leap day. And uh, that'll wrap it up for us. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.